Well, it was a strange weekend last weekend for me. We were away at the the wedding, which was a, a lovely uh, time to be with family. But it was also very strange on a Sunday to not be at church, and it felt wrong. It was nice to be with family; we had a lovely time. But it just it felt odd. The, the place where we we stayed was just outside Croydon. Uh, it was a nice hotel, uh, and it has this big golf course uh, attached to it. And, and and we were there on the Sunday morning, and um, we'd kind of had breakfast, and then we sat around and uh, had a coffee and things. And there was all these people turning up and then going off to play golf, which is obviously what they do on a Sunday. And it was very strange because that's that was their lifestyle. Um, I was talking to the uh, groom's uh, brother, who's actually a, a Baptist minister, and I was just saying how different our Sunday mornings are um, to these folk who were just arriving. But, you know, the conversation went on and we were just talking about, even within churches, so many churches, people arrive and it's a social event. Um, and it's so sad that we've, we've lost something very much in, in this country. And I guess, you know, it's not dissimilar in different places in the world where church has become more of a social event than a time to come and sit humbly before God's word. And, and so what I thought I, I want to do this morning is really have a, a look again at the importance of scripture why we believe what we believe where we stand and so on um, and i'm going to be springboarding off a couple of scriptures um, one from first timothy one from second timothy um, we've obviously finished our study in first timothy and then uh, in a couple of weeks time we're going to move into second timothy but there's a verse um, that just caught my my eye this week uh, from second chronicles and speaking of king asa and it just says this, it says, and King Asa says, and he built fenced cities in Judah for the land had rest. And he had no war in those years because the Lord had given him rest. And it's an interesting comment because typically you think if everything's at peace, why do we need to worry about building walls and fences around our cities? Why do we need to worry about fortification? If we've got peace all around us and everything's as it should be, well, there's no threat, why worry about building those walls? Well, it was clearly because King Asa realized that that situation may not last, that there may come a time where the cities of um, Judah would be under attack um, from other nations, possibly even the northern kingdom of Israel or wherever else. And so he used that opportunity wisely to put fences around those cities, to make them safe. And, you know, it's something that we should do when we have those times in our lives where we're aware of God's blessing and so on. That's a great time to start putting defenses around, making sure that, that we're secure in where we stand in our position, particularly in our understanding of Scripture and so on, because there is so much deception out there. And if you remember a few weeks ago as we were going through, um, or sorry, First Timothy, we, we quoted this, uh, and we will obviously get to it when we get to Second Timothy. Um, but this First Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This fellowship that I've had opportunity to uh, teach up in Milton Keynes recently are really hungry for the word. They want to know what the Bible says. And a number of them have come out of uh, a fellowship and various other fellowships where the word of God has not been taught. 
where they've heard a social gospel, a gospel that tells them how much we should love each other and care for each other and all those things. And of course they're, they're true and they're important, but on their own and without the, the truth of Scripture, those things can become very weak and very shallow and we end up with just a social gospel. Clearly here we're told that there is a right way of dividing the word of truth or of understanding God's word. And it's a criticism that's often put to us by skeptics and atheists and so on, that, well, the Bible can be interpreted in various different ways. You know, you can interpret the Bible however you want. And you can make it say whatever you want it to say. Well, I'm not disputing that people try and do that. But the reality is you can't make the Bible say something that it doesn't say. The Bible is actually very clear in what it teaches that the challenge and the problem comes when people try to make the Bible say something other than it says. Now, historically, I'm sure some of you are aware that in the early church there was a real issue. Um, heresy started creeping in. Um, there was a man by the name of Arius and there was others that started trying to spiritualize scripture or allegorize, trying to say that the things that were being spoken about weren't actually what was, was intended, but they pointed to other truths, deeper truths, spiritual truths. People have typically done that with the book of Revelation. Uh, they've looked at the things in Revelation and said, but it doesn't really mean that. What it means is something spiritual. There was a really good book that I read some years ago called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And actually, overall, the book was a really good book until it got to the chapters on Revelation. And it went against everything they'd said in the book up until that point. They said that you should always take the plain meaning of Scripture, just take the text as it is, you know, look at the context and so on, and it will interpret itself for you. Uh, until they got to Revelation, they said that the whole thing was just allegory. It was picture language and so on. You know, and how they then applied a different principle, you know, it just didn't make any sense. It wasn't consistent with what they'd been saying in the rest of this book, these two individuals that wrote the book. Sadly, so many people do that. I had the opportunity of speaking to another minister recently, and I was sharing about my uh, opportunity to teach. Um, in fact, uh, he was aware of my kind of schedule and the, my train journeys and so on, and said, oh, I, you know, I don't know how you do what you do. And I was simply saying, it's God's grace, it really is. And, you know, the time I have on the train is used very often for, for studying, for preparing, for teaching. Um, and I was saying that I had this opportunity of teaching this fellowship up in Milton Keynes. Um, and he was saying, oh, what were you teaching? And I said, well, it started off because they had questions about Israel and God's plan and place for Israel. Uh, and I said, obviously, so we went to Romans 11, which speaks about um, you know, the, the fullness of the Gentiles being brought in first and then all Israel being saved. And clearly that there's a place in the plan uh, that God has for Israel, for the nation of Israel. Um, and then I said, and uh, last week, which was the week before this, um, I said I was uh, going through this, looking at the second coming and the details, at which point this minister said, well, well thank you, anyway. nice to talk to you, I walked off. And I was just stunned, because we were having a nice conversation about church and what we do and ministry, and suddenly I got onto a doctrinal issue, and immediately there was contention, and this individual did not want to speak about it. And I found it really strange because clearly it exposed his position as being of replacement theology, believing that God has finished with Israel. It clearly suggested that he has real issues regarding the second coming. Because otherwise, the response would have been, oh, that's great. What were you saying? What scriptures were you looking at? Or there'd have been some sort of connection and there was none. And I found that very, very sad. You know, I may have shared with you 
um, that some years ago, back in Deal, um, we, uh, Dad and I were part of the, the Minister's Fraternal, we used to meet uh, monthly, um, and it was at uh, DCF, the fellowship there, Deal Christian Fellowship, uh, that particular month, and Dad said, why don't you do the, the little study? Because they had a little study um, as part of this meeting and the time of prayer and so on. Um, and so I said, are you sure? He said, yeah, come on, it'd be fun. So I said, okay. So I, I simply went to uh, Corinthians um, and I just read 1 Corinthians 1.10. It says this, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there may be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. You wouldn't believe the look on their faces. These ministers from other churches that were supposedly teaching truth, teaching the word of God, they all were extremely uncomfortable. The moment I mentioned anything to do with uh, speaking the same thing, being of the same mind, the same judgment, um, and it didn't quite, you know, end up in a riot. But I mean, it was it was challenging. One of the ministers uh, made some comment uh, about, you know, well, you know, everybody's saved, and somebody else, but what do you mean everybody's saved? He said, well, everybody, you know, the, the, nobody will actually go to hell. This was this was one of the Anglican ministers, and then one of the um, 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 evangelical ministers uh, started challenging that. And I, thought, I can't just step back a bit. It was so sad. The, the people that should be on the same page. And I know that, of course, there are doctrinal differences between different denominations. But there was, there was very few things that we could even agree on. You know, even things down to the virgin birth or the second coming of Jesus Christ, which we would think as basic foundational things, there were questions. And you start to realize just quite what a mess doctrinally the church is, particularly in this country. We looked at this verse in our previous study in Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 6. It says this, verses 3 to 5. If any man teach you to teach otherwise and consent not to the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, Paul says this, and this is really quite scathing from Paul. He is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strives of words, whereof come envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men, of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such, withdraw yourself, Paul says to Timothy. Well, go Paul, I love that. You know, Paul doesn't hold back there. Paul is very, very uh, aggressive almost in his defending the truth. Jude, you know, does a similar thing in, when, when Jude is speaking about the fact that we should earnestly contend for the faith which was once given to the saints. You know, there aren't lots of paths we can follow. There aren't lots of different versions of truth that we can accept. And this passage here makes it very clear that the church has a standard that we should keep in, in terms of the doctrine we hold to. And very simply, that Christ taught a number of things that was up, those things were upheld by the early church and taught by the early church and those things we should hold on to. And people that move away from those things, that try and twist those things. Paul says, those people are proud. They don't know anything. They're doting about questions and they get into details about words and what this means and that means and so on to try and build their own arguments and it says, wherever I've come, strife and envy, railings, evil surmisings. And it says, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth. You know, why can't we as believers come together with the word of God if we have any differences and see what the Bible says? 
You know, that's to me a real challenge to anybody who has a different view or opinion than you do of Scripture. If they are humble enough and willing to open the Bible and we can study together, well, that's a good thing. It doesn't mean we have to believe every single detail the same as each other. And there will be some things that we have some different views on. And that could be healthy because it can provoke our thoughts and our conversations. But if you find somebody that is not willing to turn to Scripture and study it with you, well, that immediately, immediately exposes that they are in this category. Perverse, disputing men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. Now, sadly, in so many of the established churches today, that's exactly what it is. You know, it, it, it's a job. It's a life, it's a living that people uh, make by being a, a pastor, a minister, or a reverend, or whatever title they go by. And it's such a sad thing that they are more concerned about keeping the congregation together than teaching them truth. Uh, and it's it's rife wherever you look. Uh, and the more you, you start to look, the more you realize quite the depth of the problem. Back in Acts chapter 2, uh, you know, even through the New Testament, we start to realize that the church had issues. There were problems. There were people being from within the church that were causing issues and, and uh, bringing division and so on. But the early church, right at the time of Pentecost, this is what we read, Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly. I, I love that uh, expression that we have there. The, uh, uh, it was a steadfast, ongoing determination. The uh, Greek word, uh, the prefix here, indicates it's a state of being. Uh, so they continued steadfastly, we're told, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. So we, we, we've got these things here, um, so important. The, the doctrine that they had, that had been passed down, that Jesus had taught, that they then amplified and taught on. Then they had fellowship. Also vitally important. And fellowship shouldn't just be about, you know, how was your week? You know, it was okay. How was yours? It was okay. Fellowship should be a little bit deeper than that. It should be, how are you getting on with the Lord? How's your time of study going? What have you learned this week from the Lord? Those are the kind of things we should be challenging each other with. You know, and if somebody turns around and says, well, you know what, this week I've been really struggling and I've, I've not really picked up my Bible much. Don't, don't look at somebody and frown at them and you know, say, okay, well, let, let me pray for you. you know, and then maybe during the week send them a text from Scripture or something. You know, that's what we should be doing, encouraging each other. Because we all have moments, we all have times where we struggle with that, that constant day-by-day walk with the Lord, that walking by faith. You know, the, the ideal is that we all get up really early in the morning, we spend an hour in prayer, and then we have an hour's worth of Bible study you know, before we even have breakfast. And, but the reality is that doesn't happen, does it? We need to maintain that relationship with the Lord, and these are the things that help us do that. Again, doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, remembering the communion. The communion is such a great um, reset button for us spiritually. As we come back to the cross, as we remember what it's all about, as we are come face to face with the shed blood of Jesus, and we realize again what he did for us. It's a constant reminder of where we are. That's why Paul says that we should examine ourselves in that passage in 1 Corinthians where he's talking about the communion and in prayers. Just four things, four simple things that are listed there. And all of this is a way of life. So this is the foundation 
of the early church, the, the majors, if you like, of the Christian faith. You know, and we may choose other electives as part of our own discipleship program, but these things are mandatory. Again, doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer, those four things. Now, the Apostles' Doctrine, we're going to talk about that in a bit more detail at the moment. Fellowship, we just mentioned breaking of bread also and prayer. These things, um, it's, it's the, just to comment, it's, it's a lot of what we major on in church today in general is actually omitted from that list. Um, now, uh, that's not to say things like worshipping and music and things, they're not, they don't have their place. Clearly, throughout scripture, we're uh, commanded to praise God. And it's right and proper that we do so. But it's not on the, 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 the top list uh, uh, the disciples had of the early church of what they did. I just want to talk a little bit, though, about this doctrine issue this morning. Again, they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. It's literally the apostles' teaching. <clears throat> I like this statement from uh, Albert Barnes. He says this, One evidence of conversion is a desire to be instu- instructed in the doctrines and duties of religion and a willingness to attend on the preaching of the gospel. You know, somebody who's not interested in doctrine, what we believe, the teaching of the church, you have to question where they are in their relationship to God and do they really have a relationship with God? And that willingness to preach the gospel, there should be just a natural desire. If you've been saved and you're aware of what you have been saved from, you're saved from God's wrath. And when you become aware of that, it's something surely we want to share with other people. Now, we're not all people that could just go down the high street and just chat to people, but we can all talk to people at times, friends, friends, family, colleagues, whoever. The Lord will lay people across our paths. There's always opportunities. People are not actually as close to uh, conversations about faith as we may presume them to be. But the question then, what is doctrine? Well, I like this statement. Uh, it's a creed or body of teachings of a religious, political, or philosophical group presented for acceptance or belief, or dogma, in other words. In other words, it's a foundational statement of what we believe. It's, if you like, it's the foundations and non-negotiable fundamentals of what we believe. Now, notice that statement there, that it's non-negotiable. That is what doctrine really is. It's what defines us as Christians. You know, we, we've got to a stage where people are trying to rewrite the gospel, and there's been a number of people, Rob Bell, one name that you may have come across, and many others that have tried to rewrite the gospel. Um, and they try and turn it into a whole kind of just love thing and so on. And it undermines the value of the cross continually. There's the famous book, Love Wins. Brian Broderson, in response to that, wrote a very good book called Jesus One. I think there's some copies at the back there. But, you know, there are so many that have tried to undermine the foundational basis of Christianity, and they still want to call it Christianity. You know, this is the problem that, just go with me on this. Imagine if you had a religion where you worshipped oak trees, and somebody then decides that you want to worship sycamore trees, and they want to call it the same thing. You can't because it's already defined as what it is. 
Okay, this is a silly example, but the point is Christianity has already been defined. The doctrines of Christianity have already been laid down. And sadly, what's happened is people have come along, tried to reinterpret Christianity, say that it it now means this or it means that, or that Jesus isn't really going to come back, he's not coming back physically and so on. And again, the JWs go down that road and so on. And so we end up with a different gospel. Well, that's not Christian. It's a false gospel. It's a false message. And so many churches these days have fallen prey to those lies. Well, the question then is, who decides what doctrine really is? Well, it's not for you or I to decide. I love this quote from Joe Foch. He says this, If it is taught in the book of Acts and expounded on in the epistles, it becomes church doctrine. I quite like that. I think it's very simple. So if it's something we find already in Scripture, particularly in the book of Acts, again, you see so much in the Gospels, but then expounded in the epistles, it becomes church doctrine. Now, one example we can cite of this is washing of each other's feet. Now, this is something that is not doctrine. You might be pleased to know. Okay, It's not taught in the book of Acts. Yes, Jesus gave this great example for us in John's Gospel of serving each other. And he chose to use this example of a servant who was typically the lowest servant in the house who would then wash the feet of guests and visitors to the house or the master of the house. And Jesus takes that role upon himself, showing how we should serve each other. Now, the principle, doctrine, no question. But the act of washing each other's feet, it's not something that then is picked up and taught on in the book of Acts, nor is it expounded in the epistles. In fact, even in John 13, 15, Jesus makes it clear there and says, for I have given you an example. Okay? So there are things that we find in the New Testament there are principles that are laid down. Those things themselves become doctrine because it's a principle that then is amplified and expounded. But there are other things that are very clearly doctrinal in their nature. It's important to, to state as well that, that doctrine is not a consensus of popular opinion. Now, sadly, that is where a lot of the church has gone today. It's gone down the road of what a lot of people think or believe, and they tend to not rock the boat, they go along with it. And certainly when it comes to Bible cemeteries, sorry, seminaries always get those too confused. Uh, They have the same effect. Um, But, you know, Bible seminaries, Bible schools, Bible colleges, all these kind of things, so many of them, all they do is undermine Scripture. They present a multiple-choice option of what you can or not believe. Doctrine is not that which seemed best at that particular time and in that culture. You see, doctrine is not about culture, and yet so often today we're told that the things that we believe, you know, we've got to fit in with the culture of the day. No, no, the, the, the doctrine of the church is not based on culture. It's not based upon the time in which we live. It is that which was taught by the apostles who in turn had received it directly from Jesus. And thus, it was not man's opinion about how things should be done and what should be adhered to. It was the fundamentals of of faith as given by Jesus for his church. Now these include, I'll give you some of the key ones here, the way of salvation being in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. It's one of the the most fundamental things of our belief of our faith, that salvation is only achieved through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be saved. There is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved but through Jesus. And the only way of doing that is through faith. You can't do good works and achieve salvation. 
is purely by his grace. By grace you are saved through faith, not of works. It is a gift of God. Another one of the doctrines that comes through very clearly in the New Testament is the infallibility of the word of God. God's word, the Bible, is not just a collection of books put together by men. It is the word of God given to us. It's God's word to us to instruct us in the ways and the path of righteousness and ultimately to reveal to us Jesus Christ, the living word of God revealed through the written word of God. Another key doctrine that we hold to is the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity in the person of Jesus Christ. The the Trinity is the Godhead. And throughout Scripture, we see many examples, even from the the opening chapters in Genesis. God speaks and says, you know, uh, let us create man in our image. And we have man created as body, soul, and spirit. We're created in the image of God. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And of course, Jesus being the second person of the Trinity. Another key doctrine is that Jesus willingly surrendered himself to the will of the Father and was offered as a spotless lamb to make atonement for the sins of the world. And there's a lot in that statement. One is sin, because A lot of people today will try and undermine or talk about sin in in a sense that it's not a real thing. It's a a state of mind or so on, and it's not really a real problem. Um, It's more of a psychological issue than anything else. No, the Bible makes it clear that sin is rebellion against God. And there will be a price to be paid for those that rebel against God. It's it's a non-negotiable. And that Jesus, before the foundation of the world chose to give up his position, to give up the majesty, the glory of heaven, to come to this earth and to offer himself as an innocent, perfect substitute to pay for the sins of the world. And many, many scriptures attest to that fact. Another doctrine which is unbelievably undermined today in the church, is the imminent return of Jesus to establish his kingdom and and subdue his enemies. It's a physical return the Bible speaks about. You've only got to read through Matthew. The word in the language doesn't allow for anything other than a physical return. The disciples, the early church, were expecting Jesus to return at any time. We should also be of that same mindset. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. and The Bible makes it very clear that even if we try and start trying to set dates, it's not going to help us. The Father alone knows those things. But that Jesus is going to return soon. And what we do know is that we are now 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus than we were when the disciples were recording and giving us the scripture that we have. And that Jesus, when he returns, will establish his kingdom. It will be a physical throne. It will be the throne of David. The the promise that Gabriel makes to Mary was that Jesus would be born and would sit on the throne of David. The promise that is given in 2 Samuel 7 to David many, many times, in fact, seven times it's recorded there, that Jesus will sit on the throne of David and it will be forever. It will be an everlasting kingdom. The book of Daniel 
Daniel chapter 3 and various other passages make it very, very clear that when Jesus returns, it will be to overthrow the kingdoms of this world, to establish his throne on this earth and to subdue his enemies. We're also told that, as I said, that this kingdom will be literal, a political kingdom on earth, and a continuation of the throne of David. Now that in itself necessitates Israel still being part of God's plan and purpose. The Muslims would love us to to fall for that lie that God has finished with Israel. Muslims believe that Israel were God's chosen people, but they messed it up, and because of that, they've been cast out, and now they need to be destroyed. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Israel were to be a vine through whom the world was to be introduced to God. And they did fail in that mission. They weren't faithful to God as they were called to have been. But God is faithful. And you've only got to look in places like Joel, Hosea, Amos, so many scriptures that refer to the reestablishment of the nation of Israel of those promises of judgment coming upon them, but after they've been judged, being restored, because God is faithful. And we're told there will come a time, Hosea tells us this, that there will come a time that Israel will cry out to Jesus. They'll realize he's their Messiah. They will cry out, and in the midst of their turmoil, Jesus will return to deliver them. It's not some sort of spiritual thing. It's a literal physical return as Jesus comes back. I mean, it's interesting, wasn't it? You you saw this week, I don't know if any of you wasted your evening watching Eurovision last night. Um, I I did see a a very short bit of it, which was more than enough. Um, And, and, you know, there's contention this week because of the event being held in Israel. And some of the statements that people were making about the way that Israel... uh, 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 you know, being so unreasonable to their neighbors, the way that they're um, defending themselves and, you know, these retaliatory strikes. You know, could you imagine any scenario where a sovereign nation was being continually being bombarded by missiles and rockets, uh, indiscriminate targets, and yet the world effectively saying you're not allowed to fight back? I mean, it's beyond the realm of, of, of any logical thought process and yet the world continually is so anti-semitic and we see this and there is no other explanation for this other than what we read in scripture of course the devil would love to see israel destroyed because of the statements that israel will cry out for their messiah and that'll be one of the reasons jesus comes back at the second coming another Fundamental doctrine is that God is preeminent in all things. That by his foreknowledge, he has chosen and appointed those who are heirs of salvation. It doesn't take away free choice. We have one branch of the Christian church that goes off down this road of following after some of the teachings of John Calvin. In fact, actually, a lot of the teachings of John Calvin, some of them were very good, some of them maybe not so. But, you know, any time we start following after a man, we're going to end up with issues and challenges and problems. No, no, God is preeminent. God knows all things because God is outside of time. And he has chosen and appointed those who are the heirs of salvation. No question. And yet at the same time, every individual has the free will to accept or reject salvation through Jesus Christ. God doesn't force anybody into heaven. Nor does he force anybody into hell. 
that God is the creator of all things is another fundamental doctrine. One of the worst exports of this country was the theory of evolution, which has had a stranglehold on the world's academia ever since. So many intelligent people falling for this lie that evolution is somehow the mechanism that either God used or that just naturally occurred. I mean, scientifically, it's not possible. Forget religion, just look at the science. It's not possible. But no, the, the Bible makes it clear that one of the fundamental doctrines that we have is that God is creator. And I find it really fascinating that when we get in Revelation and we see those before the throne praising God, what are they praising? They're praising God as the creator of all things. And by the way, did you know that Charles Darwin is now a creationist? Of course, he's, he knows now because he's the other side of that line. He's died. He's realized that there is a creator. And that creator is also the judge. And that we should love and serve one another, not placing ourselves above another. You know, sadly, that last one in this list so far is what so many churches base all their doctrine and their teaching on. The rest of it gets put to one side because somehow it's deemed to be controversial. I don't know about you, but those things to me, they excite me. To know that God is in control, that he has got rules, that he's going to come back, that he's going to rule and reign. That we're on the winning side. Those things, they're exciting. In the 21st century church, doctrine, again, teaching regarding fundamentals, has become almost a taboo. And it's seen as something that is divisive. Many churches and ministers are content to lay aside areas of doctrine for the sake of so-called unity. I used to like, uh, some of you may remember, there's a New Zealand evangelist by the name of Barry Smith. Uh, he's a wonderful man. I met him personally. I didn't agree with everything he taught, but that's the same with anybody. You know, we should never fully follow any one man. It's, you know, they, they have insights and things the Lord reveals, and it's great for edification and encouragement. But the only one person we follow is Jesus Christ. But Barry Smith was great in so many things he said. And one of the things he used to say was, if you've got two cats, and you tie them together by their tails, and you hung them over a clothesline, he said, there you would have union, but you wouldn't have unity. And so many churches are in that regard. They've got kind of union. They've got this kind of agreement to work together and accept things. But there's not really unity. Those who undermine the doctrine of the apostles are seen as being open-minded today, tolerant, or even forward-thinking. And, of course, those that hold to the truth, those that stand to the truth, are seen as being dogmatic, and troublemakers, intolerant, divisive, or living in the past. I'm sure you've heard some of these things. You may have even had them said of you. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with being dogmatic. It depends what the fundamentals that you're basing your belief on are. I mean, a maths teacher is dogmatic. Because two and two always equal four. That's dogmatic. That's not liberal, but you can't say two and two equal five if you like. It doesn't. There's rules. There's a standard. It's the same with scripture. John will tell you as an airplane pilot, there's rules. You can't just get in a cockpit and punch any button you want to. You know, one way is as good as another. You know, that's not how it works. And I guarantee you, any of you that have flown on a plane will hope you've got a fundamental dogmatic pilot flying that thing. 
None of you would want a liberal pilot that really doesn't care about the destination. But when it comes to faith, somehow those things are acceptable. And it shouldn't come as a surprise. Paul has forewarned us that these things would happen. In 1 Timothy 4, again, we looked at these scriptures. The Spirit speaks expressly. Again, I can't emphasize how intent the Holy Spirit is that we wake up and realize this. The Spirit speaks, speaks expressly that in the latter times, the days in which we're living, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. They've got past the point of feeling. No longer does their conscience prick them and say, that's not right. It says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. This is 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. We'll get onto this, Lord willing, in a few weeks' time. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They're the days we're living in right now. But after their own lust, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. See, our foundation, our authority is the Bible. It's not what I say. It's not what anybody says. It's the Bible itself. And the Bible we can trust. You know, and despite countless attempts by detractors and theologians alike to do away with the Bible, undermine its authority, it is and will always be the basis of what Christians believe. You see, if you reject the Bible, which anybody's at liberty to do, and teach values and ideas not consistent with that which the Bible teaches, you cannot call that belief Christianity. And there are many so-called Christian churches today that they have a cross outside and people think they're Christian, but if they are teaching things other than the fundamental doctrines of the faith, they are no longer entitled to call themselves Christians. They've moved away from the gospel. And they're teaching lies. And countless numbers of people are being deceived by this false teaching. Now, one of the sad things is that so many of the congregations of those churches don't even know what the leadership believe because they never actually teach it. They just simply teach this wishy-washy, let's love everybody kind of thing. You see, the Christianity is the literal adherence to the basic principles and doctrines of the Bible. The doctrine the believers on the day of Pentecost continued steadfastly in. All that we know of God, of Jesus, the devil, man's plight, salvation, and eternity, we know from the Bible. And the simple question we must ask ourselves is this. Do we trust the Bible? Is the Bible true? Well, we've looked so many times and we've proven so many ways that we can. And if we do, it is and becomes the non negotiable authority and foundation for our lives, regardless of how we may feel about it. Just a few scriptures to share with you. Romans 16, 17. Paul says, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. It's very clear, isn't it? Ephesians 4, 14. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried uh, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lay in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Not to be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, but have an anchor 
a sure foundation. 1 Timothy 3, sorry, 1 Timothy 1 verse 3 says, As I besought thee to abide still Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightst charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Again, 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. Knowing this, that the law was not made for the righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for the sinners, for the unholy, for profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. 1 Timothy 4, 6. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. This is just recapping some of the things we saw in 1 Timothy. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhaltation, to doctrine. Verse 16 of 1 Timothy 4 says, Take heed unto thyself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. See, it's a matter of salvation. 1 Timothy 5, 17, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. As we saw earlier, if any man can teach otherwise, he can set not to the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to God in his, his proud knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof come envy, strifes, railings, and evil surmisings. Titus will go on and say, one, Titus, Titus chapter 1 verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Titus 2 verse 1, Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. In 2 John 9 and 10, Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. That's very black and white, isn't it? He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If they come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into a house, neither bid him Godspeed. I like this quote from Tozer. He says this, Let a man question the inspiration of the scriptures, and a curious, even monstrous inversion takes place. Thereafter he judges the word, instead of letting the word judge him. He determines what the word should teach, instead of permitting it to determine what he should believe. He edits, amends, strikes out, adds at his pleasure. But always he sits above the word and makes it amenable to him instead of kneeling before God and becoming amenable to the word. Just in closing, I want to just take you through some very simple and basic rules of interpretation that are pretty much agreed on throughout the church. This list, I think, came from Arnold Fruchtenbaum originally, who later this year will be uh, coming over to one of the Calvary conferences. The golden rule of interpretation is this. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context, studied in the light of related passages, and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. Clearly otherwise. In other words, just take it as it says. God means what he says and says what he means. You know, when it comes to prophecy and so on, every time we look at prophecies that have been fulfilled, they're always fulfilled literally. Micah prophesied that Jesus, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. He was. 
It was prophesied that he grew up in Nazareth. He did. It was prophesied that the Jews would be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. They were to the day. Yet whatever prophecies we look at, they're fulfilled literally. So that doesn't give anybody the right to say, well, but the future ones will be different. No, the future will be just the same. Everything that's not yet been fulfilled will still be fulfilled in the manner in which the previous ones have been fulfilled, i.e. they will be literally fulfilled. The law of double reference. This law observes the fact that often a passage or a block of scripture is speaking of two different persons or two different events that are separated by a long period of time. Taking the book of Daniel, we've got a passage that talks about Antiochus Epiphanes. But it's also looking forward to Antichrist. So we have a model in advance of what will be. And so many times in scripture we see that. Another one of these occasions will be the situation with Isaac. Isaac and Abraham, they go up to Mount Moriah, which we know is the place we refer to as Calvary. And of course we have a father about to offer up his son. Of course, it's a model in advance of what would later take place. Even Abraham names the spot there, Jehovah-Jireh, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Abraham recognized that there's some prophetic element to what was going on there. So often we have portions that we, we see this modeling going on, where uh, an event takes place and it's a model of something bigger and something greater. The law of recurrence. This law describes the fact that in some passages of Scripture, there exists the recording of an event followed by the second recording of an event giving more detail to the first. Many times we see that happen. Something's recorded and then it's expounded on. We find that Jesus does that in the, in the um, New Testament in Matthew 13 with the parables that are there. He gives us explanation to some of those. We find in many of the prophecies in the Old Testament, again, Daniel typically we have a, an event that's given and then we have more clarity given to that. And so on. The law of context. This states that a text apart from a context is a pretext, i.e. it will probably not reveal the meaning or truth of the text in question. You can't just take a verse or a section and make it mean whatever you want to mean. It's got to be in context. Often what happens, people take passages and things that are regarding Israel and they try and make it regarding the church. That doesn't work. The law of first mention This law usually states that the first time a word or idea is used in Scripture, it is usually indicative of its meaning in subsequent usages. And that's so true, and that's why you need a good Bible to study with. As you know, I use the King James. I'm not a King James only. King James authorized the translation of the Bible, and there's a great team of scholars that put it together. There's many other versions predating that um, that also were based upon the Textus Receptus. Anything based upon the modern manuscripts avoid like the plague. Uh, There's so many issues and problems with them. But... If you've got a good Bible, you'll find that this idea is used. The first time love is used is in that situation with Abraham and Isaac. Take thy son, thy only son, who thou lovest. Love is indicated in Scripture as the love of the father for the son. That helps us to understand what love is. The world is very confused about love. There's just one. There's many of those that we could look at in Scripture. The last couple of these. The law of expositional constancy. This law states that the Bible is consistent with its use of ideas or figures throughout the Bible. Now, one example of this will be fowls of the air. Okay, Matthew 13, we're told that they're workers of iniquity. In fact, throughout the Bible, they're always seen in a negative light. Ministers of, of iniquity, workers of Satan, or so on. 
And again, that idea, once we see those kind of concepts, they're always consistent throughout the Bible. It helps us to understand a certain passage. Otherwise, it might be harder to understand. And then finally, any passage of Scripture that on the surface may seem difficult to understand will be explained elsewhere in Scripture, thus eliminating guesswork and human opinion as to its meaning. We don't get to choose what the Bible says. The Bible tells us what it says, and there's plenty in there to help us understand. And of course, we have the Holy Spirit who's been given by God to help us to understand these things. And if we go to him, if we ask him to help him to reveal to us any portion, any passage that we're struggling with, he will do so. We have an incredible treasure with God's word. We need to protect it, defend it. We need to be bold enough to tell people that are being taught lies that there is a truth that has not been changed And just like Jude says, we need to contend for the faith that was once given to the saints. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning, this reminder that we really can trust your word, that, Lord, we can build our lives upon your word, that your word does not change, that it is not bent by the culture or the times in which we live in, but rather your word shapes us. Your word teaches us. Your word directs us in those paths of righteousness that we are to walk in. And so, Father, help us to have a love and a reverence and respect for your word. Help us, Lord, to take it as you intended. Help us, Lord, to uphold and to stand for true doctrine, the doctrine that was passed down from Jesus our Lord to the disciples and then recorded in your word for us. And help us, Lord, to grow in these things, in knowledge and grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.